Um, hello, everyone. My name is Suzanne Mapak. Uh, I use she and they pronouns, and I am the curator of this series of public programming around Down to the Rights Rights Horizons. Uh, and it's really an honor to be sitting alongside these three people um, and to introduce them so we can have a conversation today uh, uh, that we're calling Care is the Antidote to Violence, which comes from Sidia Hartman, Mia Marikawa, this great article that I found as I was researching work for this panel. Um, and our conversation today will really focus on um, child sexual assault and questions of where we go from here. When you see a story like Downstate, when <coughs> stories like it tumble forth in southern Illinois and in many, many, many other places around this country and around the world, what, what now? Sort of is the question that I've posed to these panelists. And so we'll talk a little bit today about uh, the context and the history of child sexual assault, particularly in the United States, Turtle Island, um, and we'll also speak a little bit about um, prevention and what it looks like to actually build systems that can prevent harm. Uh, and then we'll also talk about responses to harm and intervention. So when harm happens, when it's already happened, then what? Uh, so that's sort of the conversation we'll have today, and we'll go many, I imagine we'll go a number of other places uh, alongside it as well. Um, so thank you for joining us. I'm going to introduce these folks now. So over here we have Ben Srijayanthan, who is an Elam Tamil queer disabled anti-violence advocate residing on the Skokie land in Atlanta, Georgia, um, originally by ways of Lenape territory in South Brunswick, New Jersey. And their efforts to end gender-based violence grounded in abolition feminism and transformative justice is housed within two entities, Just Beginnings Collaborative and the Debbie Co-op. And their organizing interests include survivor defense, transformative justice, education, inside-outside survivor community building, and dreaming of a world where love reigns supreme. So thank you to you, Jen. Jen came in from, from Atlanta for this, so thank you. Um, and then we have Amita Swabin, who is the founding co-director of Mirror Memoirs, a national abolitionist storytelling and organizing project intervening in rape culture by uplifting the narratives, healing, and leadership of transgender, intersex, non-binary, and or queer, black, indigenous, and of color survivors of child sexual abuse. For over 20 years, Anita has been an organizer, educator, storyteller, and strategist working to end interpersonal and institutional violence against young people. And we have RJ McConney, and uh, Anita came in from the West Coast, so thank you for being here with us. It's really an honor. Um, and RJ McConney brings 15 years of experience in transformative justice responses to violence and trauma-informed leadership development to his current work as the Director of Training for Common Justice, the first alternative to incarceration and victim service program in the United States that focuses on violent felonies in the adult courts. He's also a parent and a lead teacher for Generative Somatics. As a co-founder of the Challenging Male Supremacy Project and leadership team member for Generation 5, RJ's transformative justice work has focused on addressing violence against women, queer and trans people, and children. And RJ is joining us by way of Brooklyn today. All the way from Brooklyn. All the way from Brooklyn. Um, all right, so I'd love to just uh, turn the tables to each of you to introduce yourselves and your work a little bit. Um, so, yeah, can you begin by telling us a little bit about your work on issues of, of child sexual assault? Do you want to start us off, Jen? Oh, sure. Um, I'm Jen. Nice to meet everyone here. Thanks for coming. Um, I work in, like, a few different projects, but my main two, like Spawn was saying, is um, I am a co-founder and I'm also the pre-trial survivor defense organizer for an organization called the Daily Co-op. Um, we serve the entire state of Georgia, but our mission focuses on the larger South. Um, and we try to center survivors in um, kind of navigating the carceral landscape that is the U.S. conservative um, region. Um, there, I do work in two projects. One is our survivor defense lab, where I extensively work with pretrial and post-conviction survivor cases um, when it intersects with um, actually the topic of this play. Um, I work pretty extensively with survivors of human trafficking who have been criminalized to the sex offender registry, often just to be 
co-defendants and um, not actually because they were involved in anything, um, which is really shitty. Um, uh, and then um, the other project I work on is the Healing Justice Lab, which we're experimenting with different uses of transformative justice and also nuancing transformative justice so that further harm isn't coming to survivors who are choosing to use TJ to find healing and hold people who have harmed them accountable. Um, the other work I do is I have the immense pleasure of being the curriculum developer for an organization called Just Beginnings Collaborative. They are half fund, half strategic home. It's a national organization. Um, and they're really dedicated to looking for um, the root causes of child sexual abuse and ways that we can prevent it and resource to prevention. Um, there, I run a national research project right now. We just released actually a really great survey where we're trying to archive all the ways that <coughs> abolition feminism and TJ are being used to prevent child sexual abuse in this country. Um, and hopefully in a year, we are gonna release a public anthology that outlines to anybody who wants to wayfind their way to a preventative response to CSA. Um, you can pick up our book, learn, dream, imagine. Yeah. I, if you see me looking at my phone, it's because I will talk too much if I don't time myself. <laughs> um, so hi, I'm Amika. Um, I guess I would say like I'm inside of this work because I'm a survivor. I was raped by my dad for eight years of my childhood and then had mandated reporting enacted in my life against my will when I was 13, um, and that was not it was not a great experience because of the state system. I grew up uh, in Jackson Heights a little bit and then from the age of four onwards in a very working class um, immigrant community in northern New Jersey. Um, and so maybe 20 minutes across the George Washington Bridge in Bergenfield. And um, the state respondents, the prosecutors and social workers and police who responded in my house were all white and threatened to incarcerate my mom for what they saw as being complicit in the violence that had happened to me. But my mom was in a very abusive relationship where she was victimized by my dad for 16 years. Um, so, you know, I, I don't think I had the language. Well, I know I didn't have the language of abolition when I was a child, um, but when I look back now as a 44-year-old adult, I can see that I, what I wanted was not anything that the state gave to me. Um, I also want to name that the state never asked me what I wanted. And at 13, I'm sure like a lot of us can remember being 13. I was in ninth grade. I was an older sibling. I was what my teachers called precocious. If someone had just asked me what I wanted, I had some ideas. Um, and so it was not helpful to have all of that sort of taken out of my hands. And instead of being able to tell somebody that I could trust what was happening to me, and what had happened and what my mom and sister and I, I have a younger sister, what we needed to be safe. I had to spend my time and energy sort of evading the police and the prosecutors having enough evidence to incarcerate my mom, right? Which was like just another layer of violence for us then to have to heal from. So that really informs, I guess, what you can call a career at this point, you know, just lots of trials and experiments from the age of 17 onwards, I went to college at 17 of trying to figure out what I could do to make sure that, you know, not only would my family be safe and well, but that like what had happened to me would stop happening to anyone. So I think I've been inside of the question my whole life of how can we stop children from being raped? Um, and my answer has evolved as I've learned a lot from sort of throwing myself against that wall <laughs> what it felt like throwing myself against the wall of that question and in the process meeting amazing survivors who i've been in community with inside of that question and i think now i can understand like being inside of the question in community is the work um, that's very much the work i'm doing in the 
circle of mirror memoirs, which now has 650 LGBTQ people of color members who are all survivors of childhood sexual abuse. Um, all of us are people of color across the country. And, uh, you know, it's lovely to be here with RJ. We were in a play together, um, gosh, 12 years ago, I think we started that process. The director of the show is here, Sarah Zatz from Ping Chong and Company. Um, so, you know, I've been at the nexus of like storytelling in ensemble with other survivors, because I think only when we have ensemble uh, efforts to tell our stories together, do you really start to see the systemic um, endemic nature of this violence, that it's not sensationalized, it's not a one-off thing. There's a problem at the foundations of our society. So I'm glad to be here. Um, also come, you know, also come to the work as a survivor. Um, it was a really powerful experience to get to, to do the Secret Survivors um, performance with you, Amita, and, and to work with you, Sarah. Um, I was sexually abused as a child in my um, daycare setting, like or in like um, my um, babysitter setting, uh, and then also as a teenager by a much older woman, um, and got really active in work around challenging uh, the violence of policing um, and prisons. And it was through that work that I met people that were talking about um, child sexual abuse and this idea of addressing child sexual abuse through transformative justice. And that was sort of, uh, that was a big kind of aha moment for me. It was kind of a painful moment also because I had sort of buried those experiences and just kind of been a, you know, an activist and, and, and in the work, but hadn't made that connection. Um, and so that was, I think that was probably in like 2004, 2005, like, you know, making that connection and then again, just like being like, okay, like, I need to be with this. Um, so um, as, as you mentioned, you know, as part of a, a, a project called Generation 5 that was really looking at, um, you know, articulating transformative justice as a response to child sexual abuse. And then that grew into a project called the Challenging Male Supremacy Project that was based here in New York City, uh, where uh, a group of us started out as, as a group of cisgender men. Some trans men got involved further along in that journey. Uh, but we were all men in New York City who were really uh, responding to, mainly responding to instances of sexual assault um, between adults um, within organizing activist communities in New York City. Um, but still kind of rooting in uh, transformative justice framework. So, uh, the, you know, the folks that were coming to us, survivors that were coming to us seeking support, um, didn't want police uh, involved, but still wanted to respond to the violence. Um, and then my current work is with a place called Common Justice. Uh, and we, um, I, I was in the side of the work that works with people who caused harm. So I work with folks who um, have pled to um, attempted murder, to uh, assault with a deadly weapon, armed robbery, um, and we uh, also do victim services work. And it, but we work very much connected to the system in that way. You know, the cases come to us because people got picked up by the NYPD, because the DA's offices has referred them to us. So it's very much inside of the system in that way. Um, but our responses keep people out of prison. Uh, so when folks work with me or work with my team, uh, they are living at home, and they're coming and meeting with us. And uh, I can just say that um, 
the, the survivors that we work with, uh, when asked, are way more satisfied with the outcomes that they're getting than survivors who are, who are asked about their experience kind of going through the typical criminal legal response to these kinds of violence. Um, let's start talking about context a little bit. Um, so, uh, there's, while child sexual assault is in, is, are instances of occurrence, there's also historical context and cultural containers that have created and continue to create and perpetuate um, child sexual assault in this country. Um, so, beginning with Amita, I'd love to start with you. Can you tell us a little bit about the historical context of CSA and where it sees its roots in American society? And, yeah, thanks for that question. I think my answer would be different depending on which country's context we're talking about, yeah. right? And I'm just naming that as someone who's from an upper caste Hindu lineage in India, right? Like rape culture in India and in the South Asian subcontinent, you have to talk about the history of like the caste system and Brahminical patriarchy, right? And so rape culture is a global phenomenon, right? The endemic violence of children getting raped and of patriarchy surrounding that violence is literally all over this globe. And I think that's important to name, right? It's not unique to any particular region of the globe. The way that it happens and the social context is going to be different. So let's root this work here, right? We're on a land that was colonized, you know, roughly 500 years ago. And in that colonization act, I think something we don't acknowledge enough is that children were raped by design, right? Indige indigenous children were raped and murdered and hunted. Um, the boarding schools are just one layer of documentation of that. But of course that violence was happening from the very beginning, right? Even though the girl that we know in pop culture as Pocahontas was a little girl. She was 12, right? At the time that she was like kidnapped and raped by a white settler. Um, and so you can't divorce this violence from the history of this, this country being colonized, that we're on stolen land. And then of course, in the kidnapping of African people and bringing them here and the, the introduction of the system of racial capitalism, which is also in the US where you can trace the introduction of a gender binary, right? People being considered property made people be sorted into categories to be forced bred, right? And what is forced breeding but like enacting sexual violence in a system? And that included the systemic raping of children. Not to mention the people that were the first presidents of this country, like we're also documented rapists, right? If you talk about George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, these are men who kept women and children enslaved and sometimes grown men at, to be raped at their pleasure, right? So we just can't talk about ending sexual violence in this place that's now called the United States without acknowledging that history. And I think that's really important in the context of this show when we talk about the institutions that grow out of colonization, genocide, and enslavement, right? The prison system, policing. In this moment after the uprisings of 2020, hopefully we now have more and more growing collective awareness that like police were used as an early institution to catch uh, enslaved people who were running away, right? When we think about family policing, which is also sometimes called mandated reporting, it's part of that same system. And, and we could trace every major institution in this country to that very history. So I think that's the history I want to read this conversation in. Obviously, RJ and Jenny, please feel free to add because it's a massive question. Would either of you like to add in? 
Absolutely. Well, let's let's talk about let's shift the conversation and talk about prevention, which is of course in conversation with the cultural <laughs> container and the context that this is, is sourced in. Because how do you prevent something without looking at its roots? Um, so, can you tell us a little bit, Jen, about your work um, in the American South and also from a community standpoint, both in the American South and in other parts of this country? Like, what does it mean to take a preventative approach to harm reduction? And and how can we create circumstances in our containers so that harm doesn't have to happen? You know, downstate presents a reality in which harm has already happened. Um, in many cases, it presents many different narratives in which harm has actually already happened. And if we were to think about preventing it, what, what does that look like? Yeah, um, so I think even if you take it outside of the context of like the American South, like across the country, if you look at like what child sexual abuse prevention is, like it all relies on the fact that a child has been abused, right? So it's not really even like, I think Just Beginnings does a really good job covering this. Like it's not actually prevention if it requires harm to already have happened to a child, you know? <laughs> and I think that also definitely includes like public school education because all we're really teaching kids are what red flags are of like the shadow villain that exists in your community. Um, and then we tell them to call the police or we tell them to go to somebody who more likely than not is a mandated reporter. Uh, none of these things are keeping children safe because it requires the fact that somebody has been hurt already. Um, when you look at root causes of child sexual abuse, more often than not, it's, it's similar root causes to like a number of other issues that are happening in our society, right? Like people are not being able to get good food on their table, people are not able to make a livable wage, people are not able to um, have housing. But also there's this other layer to it that when you feel powerless, there's one way that we are taught through history, through time and time again, to gain power, and that is to just seek it, dominate it, and grab it. And if we're not addressing root causes, then like we're not really even taking a preventative approach. So like I know with what a lot we deal with in Georgia, for example, is the fact that in our law there's no room for intent. You know, like even in our murder statutes, like if you commit a felony and someone dies as the result of a felony, you're on the hook on for that murder, whether or not when you were going into the felony you committed, you wanted to commit that in the first place. So a lot of, like, for example, the DV survivors that I work with, the trafficking survivors that I work with, like, they're not, they're not in situations where they're trying to hurt somebody. Like, for DV, more often than not, these are women who are protecting themselves from brutality. For human trafficking, these are women who are being forced to, like, interact with younger people um, that are also being forced to have sex for money. And at the end of the day, like, criminalizing them doesn't prevent the issue either, right? Um, but the, also the answer isn't in incarcerating people who cause harm, right? Because even in the play, when really, I thought it was really powerful in the play, the fact that they address in the play that there is such a high rate of people who do cause harm in regards to child sexual abuse also having their own experiences being victimized by child sexual abuse. We see the same thing in domestic violence. We see the same thing in sexual assault. We see time and time again, people are dominated when they think it's okay to get their power so like at the end of the day, I really do feel that a preventative approach to CSA involves a meeting your community where it's at and like addressing the things that need to be addressed so that people are able to be okay, so that people don't have like a reason to dominate, to take, to grab, to assume power over in order to be okay. I think that's hard in this country because elections are won on this exact premise, you know, like it's not family protection that's winning an election, it's really expanding family policing and you know, I think what's really special about what we do locally in the DV co-op is like, we really just like, we're just trying to get money and give it to people who need it, you know? 
We're trying to get resources and get it to the people who need it because those are the things that help people escape toxic relationships. Like these are the things that help people have relationships that are healthy to begin with. You know, if we're going to do prevention education in schools, medically accurate sex ed first, first and foremost, right? We want to teach kids in school how to have healthy relationships with one another. U.S. I did a lot of teen dating violence work in my life, like. I, even my peers, like I'm 26, I go to my peers, I'm like, what do you do to get out of a toxic friendship? No one knows how to answer that. So how do we expect people who are young to get out of toxic, intimate relationships when all of that stuff is not So yeah, I think I think my answer to that in a really long-winded way is you need to address these root causes, right? And like at the end of the day, these root causes are not, they're not special, you know? Like they're not specific, these are root causes for a number of different ways that people are hurt in this country and in this world. We just have to actually prioritize that, and that's not the thing that's running elections. Thank you. I, I'd like to just add in this piece around downstate, you know, presents this model of, you know, folks who have been incarcerated, who are living in a halfway house, who are living on the sex registry, which people often turn to as like, look, we have a sex registry as a tool that in some cases is claimed to prevent child sexual assault, right? The registry as a, as a, as a carceral tool to prevent it. And what Jen is saying here is like, that's not prevention if the harm has already occurred, right? Like if we are incarcerating people after the harm, if we're reporting on harm that has already occurred, that's not taking a preventative model, it's taking a reactive model right. and, a, and a carceral model, right? And so, you know, I really appreciate that, that nuance within mm -hmm. there because, you know, our next panel on December 3rd, we're also going to speak specifically about the registry and, and registry abolition and the ways in which the registry is, in fact, failing to support and care for or prevent right. uh, <laughs> children from being abused, um, but I really appreciate that nuance you're offering. Can I touch on one more piece that you just brought in my mind? Like, I'm really lucky to work with this woman named Nicole Pittman. She's done incredible work around registry and like especially young people who are criminalized to the registry and you see in her work and other people too, like we have this idea that like the sex offender is like out here and like perpetually criminal, like perpetually like going after young people. Like when you look at CSA statistics, even sexual assault statistics, like the majority of people who are victimized, it's, it's like, I think for sexual assault, like 9% is a complete stranger. Like over 90% of people who are sexually assaulted, whether as a child or an adult, like it's probably someone you know, it's a community member. And I don't know about you guys, but it, it's very hard for me to put a loved one in prison, you know, especially knowing that there is sexual assault in prison, you know, like I've worked PREA cases and when you're sexually assaulted in prison, like those folks don't really have any options legally, you know. Um, what is a PREA case? Sorry, like um, the Prison Rape Elimination Act. So if you're sexually assaulted in a prison, there's a, a procedure for you, but that procedure actually is just dead end after dead end after dead end after dead end. And, you know, I, I just want to highlight, like, even we have this registry, but, like, if you look at the stats, like, not even just, like, the relational base, but the majority of people on the registry, it's not even, like, a violent sexual act has occurred even, you know? It's, like, people who are peeing in public, someone who has pulled down their mm -hmm. pants, like, Young people, especially, that's the case. And like, when you're holding on to this registry as well, like you have to hold the fact that there are people who are actually victims that are serving long sentences. And it's not even sentences; it's administrative conditions. So you can't even like get off it, like really. Yeah. Um, there are survivors who are actively on the registry right now, living under those purviews, being told that they are monsters, but in reality, they have been failed the most. Yeah. I would love to turn to Ethan Arjay on this question of, of prevention as well. Do you have anything you want to add to that, I mean, I, I'll, I don't want to take up too much time, but I'll just say on the um, 
the play specifically brings up for me the work of one of my uh, comrades and colleagues. Uh, we were actually both grantees of the Just Beginnings Collaborative mm -hmm. uh, together, and her name is Sonia Shah. She founded and co-directs um, a national organization called the Ahimsa Collective. Um, they're also based in California, and um, they do restorative circles with uh, primarily cisgender men who are incarcerated and then coming out um, of incarceration into reentry homes, similar to the one in Downstate. Um, and some of the men uh, who are in, well, all of the men who are in that program, they elect to be in it. So during the time that they are incarcerated, they can choose to be part of this circle program. And I believe the whole curriculum is uh, up to three year program. Uh, they meet once a month in circle and, um, you know, it's like an eight hour session each time they meet. And the very first 18 months is just internal curriculum around <clears throat> feminism and healing and accountability. And then during the next 18 months, they start inviting outside speakers in who have either survived the murder of a loved one or have survived being raped or sexually assaulted as a child. So I'm sharing this because I had the chance to sit in circle with those men twice, once in uh, 2018 and once in 2019. And I think uh, to your point, Jenny, that you know the data shows us that of the many people that we've had a chance to uh, be in conversation with who we know have assaulted a child, which I just want to be clear is a small minority of the people who are out there assaulting kids because most people never get caught up in the system, right? I think one only needs to look at our former president Trump to see how people might escape that kind of accountability, or people like Jeffrey Epstein and everybody on his list, which is probably also another former president, right? Like, if you have power, if you have money, if you are white, if you are a man, if you are straight, if you are able-bodied, and so on and so forth, we're living among people who are raping children all the time, all the time. And that is the uncomfortable truth about it, right? Mm -hmm. So like whatever notion we think like prisons will do for us by like keeping us safe, if only we could get all of those bad people in there, mm -hmm. like that's not realistic because the number of people doing the harm includes such powerful people who will forever escape accountability in these particular systems, mm -hmm. first of all, right? And then secondly, of the people who do get caught up in those systems, uh, it became really clear to me as one of the storytellers in one of those restorative circles as we passed the talking piece around after I shared my story, almost all of them were broken down in tears talking about their own survivorship because almost all of them had been raped as kids. And they all said, I never got treatment, I never got support, I never had a safe place I could go to heal. You know, And we also know that most people who are raped or sexually assaulted as children do not go on to rape or sexually assault more mm -hmm. children. Mm -hmm. But again, of the people who are incarcerated for this crime who we've had a chance to study, most of them are themselves survivors mm -hmm. who never got therapy, never got support, were never believed, right? Never got transformative ways of like, how do you act in a healthy way? Mm -hmm. What is healthy intimacy? What mm -hmm. is a good boundary, right? So for anyone who's having a reactive response as a survivor, mm -hmm. which again is a minority of survivors, like what could prevention really look like mm -hmm. if we put along with like a, a body autonomy kind of curriculum into our schools. Um, also like the violence is not going away tomorrow. So I think mm -hmm. a lot about like what it would have meant for me in ninth grade to have in my health class the same way that we learn about other epidemics, right? We teach about mm -hmm. HIV. We should be teaching about child sexual abuse as a public health issue. 
if I had been in ninth grade and looking at the, the federal data from the Centers for Disease Control, that one in four girls and one in six boys as a baseline, that doesn't even include like gender nonconformity as a risk factor for child sexual abuse. So if you're a gender nonconforming kid, as I was very visibly, I was like a quote unquote tomboy, if you're undocumented, if you're black, if you're indigenous, if you're disabled, if you're deaf, these are all risk factors that make you more vulnerable. Any marker of difference in our society. And so the rates go up from one in four and one in six. Can you imagine how many people we're thinking about, talking about, and most of us, while we're kids going through that violence, think we're the only ones, right? Because our media sensationalizes it. So my whole childhood, I thought I was alone. And then you know, the tragedy of it all is that when I started talking to even mm -hmm. friends I had grown up with, they all started disclosing. So can you imagine how our own lives might have been different if we had just had a health class that had said, this is an endemic form of violence? At the very least, we could have supported each other, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Which we should have had better support from the adults around us, but at least we would have known how to speak to each other as children and to have been inside that terrible experience of violence, not so alone. And that's the work I'm trying to do with Mira Memoir. Right? Like, I don't think we can put a binary in place between healing and prevention work because most of the people committing the violence are survivors as well. And that's the uncomfortable truth of it. When we say believe survivors and support survivors, you know, do we really mean all survivors? And like, I do, you know, like, I don't think anyone should experience the violence that I lived through including the men in that prison. And that was the uncomfortable truth in that circle is I was crying while talking to them saying, I didn't expect this. I have more in common with you as men who were raped as little boys than I do with people who were never raped as kids, right? And we should be supporting people to heal so that they, whatever is wounded, whatever needs healing, particularly around shame and self-loathing, that that wound gets restored, that you're a human being and things happened to you when you were a kid that shouldn't have happened. And how can we, as a society, compassionately and boundaried, give mm. you tools so that you can reclaim your humanity? And certainly dehumanizing, you know, sex offender registries and policies that go with them, that's, that's not helping anyone heal their self-loathing. Mm. I'm just thinking now about this moment in the play where Dee and Andy are having a conversation, and Dee in that moment, if you've seen the play, discloses... I don't want to spoiler alert, <laughs> it's okay. Dee discloses that he himself is a survivor of, of child sexual abuse. And I think about what it would have looked like for that conversation to be in a different container. And what it would have looked like to have a different model of what that encounter was, in fact, uh, for those two people in that moment. Uh, just, it just brought that to mind. Um, RJ, do you want to add anything to this question of prevention? Um, the only thing I would add is in your earlier remarks, Amita, you pointed to um, the history of colonization of, and of slavery in our country. And, and like, if we were to really turn and face uh, those legacies and try to do like big scale collective healing work around that, I think that would also be a contribution to uh, ending child sexual abuse. Mm -hmm. You know, just the ways that kind of these layers are all linked and reverberate. Uh, and so I, th I think, you know, that's, that's a reason why um, we also talk about those things and we point to those things. And I'll just bring in the language for a moment here of abolition, which is also, right, it, abolition is a tool of ending something, right? Car in carceral systems, policing. Um, it's also a tool of building something. And it's a tool of building infrastructures for support that meet the root causes of what's causing what we call crime, right? Mm -hmm. Or what we call uh, these things that people end up in prison for. And so, uh, you know, abolition, I think, is, is language that's helpful in that, in that framework of saying, 
Um, prevention also looks like building something else. Mm -hmm. um, that doesn't exist mm -hmm. right now. That, that creates infrastructures that support people who need, who need that support in order to then, in turn, prevent harm. Um, let's, talk, let's talk about intervention and responses to harm. You know, downstate, of course, presents a reality where harm has already happened. We see a form of an intervention to harm uh, or a response to harm at the very beginning of the play. That's sort of what the play launches us with, is with Andy coming to this house and, 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 and having this encounter with Fred. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about, you know, um, when harm happens in your, through your work, where can we go from here? And, and you know, I know you do a lot of this um, direct response work and direct encounter work. And um, can you help share a little bit about what strategies and visions exist for responding to it? And we spoke also about the word forgiveness and, mm -hmm. and where does the idea of forgiveness play into this, if at all? <laughs> I took some notes. I want to be respectful. How many minutes? <laughs> um, I took some notes too. Uh, I, I guess what I can say from my you know years of working at Common Justice, from the, from the years kind of before that of doing community-based responses to, to sexual violence, um, and then my own experience as a survivor, is that um, you know those of us who experience these things, whether we call ourselves victims or survivors, if we just say that's something that happened to me. Um, you know, the, the things that we tend to want, and the things that all the survivors other than myself who have gotten to interact with tend to want are, are options. We want some options. Um, we want to have some agency. Like, we, we, we want to feel our power be involved in some way. Um, and, and a piece of that is that, you know, for most of us, when we experience something like this, it's, it is a feeling of, of powerlessness or a feeling of not having some choice, right? So survivors, we want options. We want agency. Um, we want access to some real uh, opportunities to heal, right? We want answers. Why did this happen to me? Like, why did this happen? We want answers. Um, and we want some, some, we want to see some real change, some real accountability from the person that did it. You know, those tend to be the things, like over and over and over. That's not always true. Like, some survivors I've interacted with are like, I just want to get a crew of people together and go and beat that person up. You know, and in terms of the work that we do, we'd be like, well, that's not really what we do. You know? <laughs> but I want you to have options. You know? And the same would go for somebody who's like, I actually just want to call the police right now. Again, it's like that's not what we do, but I want you to have options. You know? So, but all the things I just described, like the criminal legal system doesn't really tend to any of those things. Um, and, and I really want to center us there. It's just like we're not getting those things. Um, and so when, when I talk about the ways that we as a society can respond to child sexual abuse, I'm not coming from a moralistic place. I'm not coming from an idealistic place. Like we're, ta we're talking, let's be pragmatic. Let's be pragmatic about addressing it. Um, some of what Amita and Jenny shared, you know, um, we can say that this isn't so much about stopping individual monsters, right? But it's more about addressing a socially entrenched form of violence. But that being said, like, what do we do? Like, what do we do when it happens? When someone does something that feels so monstrous to many of us, like sexually abusing a child, like, what do we actually do? Um, and all of this political analysis isn't really that helpful in that moment. You know, it's like, great, okay, so now I know it's rooted in colonization, slavery, great, but still, like, what the fuck do I do? Like, um, and I, I think if we want to be our most effective, 
we need to be able to move through our first initial responses, you know, which are often horror or terror or disgust or rage. Like, you know, this is what we will feel. But if we want to get to a place where we're actually going to effectively address child sexual abuse, we've got to move through that. Um, and what do we know? We know that some of us as humans experience the urge to have some sort of sexual experiences with minors, children, babies. This is something that we know. Like, it's, it's documented. Um, it's not an easy thing to sit with. I've worked with people who suffer from this sort of desire and ideation. And those same people are also deeply committed to never acting on it. So if we're serious about reducing child sexual abuse, we could provide accessible and anonymous counseling for people who experience this. Germany does this. And if we stay stuck in our fear, if we stay stuck in our disgust, our horror, um, then we'll just continue business as usual, but this is not being protective of children. We also know that when older children and teenagers are sexually abusive to those that are significantly younger than them, that it's, uh, it's usually not because they're suffering from the sort of ideation I was just talking about. Um, what we know is that they're typically acting out uh, what they themselves have already experienced. So a restorative justice response for young people who commit child sexual abuse is typically going to be much more effective and appropriate than a carceral or a punitive one. And I can say that the two people that abused me were not well. And in neither case would I have dreamed of getting the police involved. Not because I was an abolitionist, right? Um, but because even then I had the sense that it wouldn't be helpful in any way. Um, and so what do we know about the guys like the ones depicted in Downstate, right? We know that they come out of prison often completely isolated and with extremely limited options for housing, employment, and connection. And we know that isolation and unaddressed shame are core drivers of recidivism. So we want to find ways to build connection and community around these guys. Not because we're such wonderful, enlightened people, but because we know, again, that this is what's protective of children. And in many different parts of the states, Canada and other countries, there are programs that do this. They're called, typically called circles of support and accountability. And they typically involve people in a returning citizen's community who are able to move through their initial response to volunteer to be consistently engaged in that person's life. Um, so those are like a couple examples of just the kinds of things of like, what do we do? What are people already doing? Uh, but again, you know, and, and I think to tie back to your question about forgiveness, um, and, and this is true of common justice as well, like forgiveness is a possible sort of like ancillary effect of something that might happen. Um, but in, in none of the work I've been involved in have we seen forgiveness as like a central component of a pragmatic, grounded response uh, to addressing these forms of violence. It might happen. It might be incredibly healing for the person who was harmed. It might be really meaningful and powerful for the person who harmed. Um, but I think a lot of times, because we're uh, shaped in like a predominantly Christian society, and no knock on Christianity, 
but just that sometimes these notions of forgiveness get so foregrounded, mm-hmm. right? And it's like it's it's not and it's not really about that at all, right? But it is something that could happen, and wouldn't it be nice? Can you can you break down the word accountability a little more for us? Like, what is like what is account? This is, can be friendly. Yeah. What is accountability? What does it mean to be accountable for harm that a, that one has committed? Why might some why what might accountability offer to someone who's seeking? And what might it look like? I can kick it off. Yeah. Um, sure. Um, so, accountability. Um, but yeah, again, a lot of times people uh, would associate accountability with saying sorry. I'm sorry, you know. Um, and what? And again, the sorry might be a part of it, sure. But it's really about um, like acknowledging what happened. Like uh, you know, in, in the in the story, right? There's in, in downstate. There's this piece around like, hey, I need you to. I need you to say that yes, this stuff happened to me, right? And it's actually the character's inability to do so that that triggers uh, such a response. Um, but that's a part, that's a huge part of it. It's just like yes, these things happened. I was a part of it, and then it's really meaningful to say, and I recognize the impact that that had on you. I I, I see not I you know I acknowledge not just that it happened, but I see how it impacted you, and then. I'm gonna, if I'm the person who caused harm, I'm gonna commit to doing the work I need to do so that you know I'm never gonna do that to anybody else again. And I would really like to know, what can I do now? Short of getting in a time machine and going back and like not doing it, what can I do now to make things as right as possible? And then like finding out what that is and doing it. That's how we think about accountability and common justice. And, and the one of the most powerful things I get to witness is I get I get to witness uh, survivors and, and the people who caused them harm come together and have those kinds of conversations. And then I get to accompany people as they go through that process of their own kind of growth and transformation and fulfilling on those agreements, fulfilling on those commitments. Um, and it just looks so entire, like it's not even related to our current criminal legal system. Like the process is so completely different. Like the, it, 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 it's, it's, and yet, and yet, you know, the way we're doing it is like these two things are kind of laid side by side. It's a very bizarre kind of experience. I have one more follow up question on this, and I'd love to also hear from both of you on this question of responses to harm as you'd like to share, which is, in those moments of, and what can I do? You know, from a person who's caused harm, like, if the answer is there's absolutely nothing, what then? Like, nothing is good enough. Nothing will ever be enough. Like, where, is there anywhere to go from there? Or is that sort of the end of, of, a, of a process for someone? I'm just curious if you've encountered that in your, I mean, I've been that? through that. Like, I haven't <laughs> spoken to my father since I was 16. Yeah. And that was by my choice. Um, I'm not a believer in forgiveness being necessary for a survivor to feel yeah. healing. You know, uh, I don't think healing is like a finish line, right? Um, particularly inside of ongoing rape culture, right? Like I'm queer. I'm a non-white person. I am uh, gender queer. My partner is a trans black man. Like rape culture can't be divested from any of the identities I just talked about for the foundational reasons I said in the in the beginning. So I can heal pieces of my 
childhood experience, but there's still violence coming at me from the state. Right. It's coming at the people I love. It's certainly coming at the people I steward mirror memoirs with, right? So that's a container primarily for transgender and gender non-conforming black, indigenous, and of color child sexual assault survivors. So I think that the question about like where do we go from there is like I, I hope that someone like my father in an ideal society that we don't live in right now would have the kind of supports that you're building with common justice. Like I don't I think for me forgiveness is about relationship. And I think it's absolutely okay when we support survivors' autonomy to say you get to break relationships. And I talk a lot in my work about blood supremacy being part of the patriarchy that allows rape culture to flourish globally. Like, I don't. I think part of my autonomy as someone who was harmed by like legacies of blood in my family by my father and his very patriarchal brothers, right? Like, it's it's part of my healing to cut off that side of my lineage and to say you don't get access to me. You haven't earned that relationship with me. Why? Just because we share blood? Like, no. You have to earn that relationship. And if maybe if he and his and his brothers uh, who protected him had been of the mindset of like what you're saying. Uh, or what you said, like, how can we help repair what's possible to repair? Because you can't, just like you can't unmurder someone, you can't unrape someone, right? Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I, I think it's okay for any survivor of any kind of violence to say, I no longer want a relationship with that person who did violence to me. There's nothing they could do that would re-earn that right to a relationship. You know, that's how I feel about my father. That's how I feel about his whole entire family, minus my half-sister on that side, who I am in a relationship with. You know, like, there's there's just nothing. Now, however, do I think that there are things that survivors usually want? Many of the things that you listed, RJ, I mean, in the Mirror Memoirs audio archive, I asked every survivor, we have 73 stories on record, um, of queer and trans people of color who are survivors. And I asked all of them, uh, and this is a question I like to ask all of us, because frankly, whether or not you're a survivor, 100% of us were raised in rape culture, right? Like literally all of us. And so if we were all in the imaginings of like, what do we all need? What do you all need to undo rape culture in your heart and in your head, right? Like our collective healing. If we all went through a portal right now into a dimension in which capitalism doesn't exist, and your only responsibility from the moment you get up till you go to sleep is to heal yourself of rape culture, whether that's from a place of directly experiencing it or just living in this violent society. And you have a toolbox that has every material uh, and spiritual resource to support your healing, what's in the box? And so we have 73 different answers in our audio archive and zero of them are police and prisons. And not because I said to people, you must be an abolitionist to be part of this project. Wow. Many people didn't even know that word, but people said like, I need stable housing. I want art supplies. I want really good food and lots of friends to enjoy it with. I want a support animal, right? Like a pet or like a horse or a dog or whatever to love me. I want to be able to swim. I want to be able to dance. I want, you know, for our wheelchair users, like I want accessible grounds where I can be with my community and not have to worry about the fact that I'm a wheelchair user keeping me separate all the time, right? Like these were some of the answers that people said. There's many, many beautiful things. So I think another way people could be accountable is like, you know, how do I use whatever money I might have access to to pay for your stable housing, your food, your education, your art supplies, your therapy. My God, I've spent like, I don't know, I've had to have two reproductive surgeries because of trauma-related tumors. Like, 
at least $100,000 on all of my healing. And there's studies about this from, from the government. It's like, what, roughly at least $140,000 per child sexual abuse survivor for your lifetime of healing your body and your mind to the possibilities that you can. Most people can't afford that, mm -hmm. right? Most people, if we don't have health insurance, if you don't have your basic needs met, so I think those are some things people can do, and it may never earn back a relationship. And accountability is not something we do to other people. Like Miriam Kava, who lives here in New York, and if you don't know her work, you really should. Um, so many projects that Miriam's involved in. She and Andrea Ritchie just wrote a book called No More Police, in which they talk about both being survivors of sexual violence themselves. But Miriam talks a lot in her work about like accountability is not something you can do to another person. We can't hold people accountable because that's actually not accountability, that's punishment. And if we're all going to undo rape culture from our heads and our hearts, then we have to undo punishment culture in our heads and our hearts because that's actually part of rape culture. Accountability, like RJ was talking about, is something someone can choose to do themselves. And in Mirror Memoirs, we have workshops for all of us who were raped as kids to take a look in the mirror and say, what part of myself do I need to rewire so that I'm not doing harm? And it's not about not raping kids. It's like the, the little things, the like toxic ways we may behave in organizing communities with each other, the toxic ways we may behave in our intimate romantic relationships with each other, right? That that's work we can choose to be accountable to as we learn how to be maybe a healthy adult that we didn't grow up around. Mm -hmm. And so accountability is like a personal journey that can be supported by our communities, but we can't inflict it on each other because that's punishment. Mm -hmm. Jeff, do you want to add anything to the question of accountability or is it possible? Um, I really love this nuance. Like, I really love this nuance around like accountability. It's so conflated with the criminal legal system that it's like it's an apology or it's like what you can do, like restitution, like what you can do for that person to like even it out or whatever the logic is there. But like, yeah, there's interpersonal accountability, but there's also personal accountability. Like I hate rhetoric out there that kind of makes it seem like by you addressing the root causes that led to you to cause harm, you are making excuses. And I even see like time and time again in like TJ process mm. settings where this logic is like instilled in the process and it just causes more harm. Mm. Um, I think personal accountability is like really taking a solid look at like what do I not have that leads me to need to seek it out in a way that comes at the expense of another human being. And what I really love about abolition is that like everyone thinks like at prison mm -hmm. abolition is like you know, rah rah rah, Antifa. At least that's what they think down in Georgia. Mm -hmm. You know, rah rah rah, Antifa, all this stuff. Abolition at its entity and core is creativity. It's really being like, if we don't have like a government to save us, how do we save one another? You know, and I think on the individual level, if we're really holding ourselves accountable, that shouldn't also happen because someone has told us we have hurt them. You know, I think that there's like there's these great brain neuroscience studies that talk about how like on some sort of like neurochemical level, we're able to perceive the emotional affect of the others, especially people that we care about and we love. If gender-based violence itself is happening in, within communities and within people who know each other, we know when we have done someone dirty, you know? And I think that is even outside of the context of rape culture, even like in our interpersonal, like the toxic behaviors that we do.
I just, I don't know. I think for me, my, my, I hope that out of this question, people take away, like, it's not making an excuse to say why you did something, you know? If it, it, part of that is accountability. Part of that is acknowledging the hurt that has come to you. And if we're gonna break down this abuser-survivor dichotomy, we have to make space for people who have caused harm in this type of way to also have those conversations for themselves. And it's not a distraction, it's not an excuse. It's, it's their life, you know? Yeah. Thank you all for those, those words. I'd love to talk for a moment, knowing I have also, you know, many of you identify as artists and storytellers as well. I'd love to talk for, you know, particularly Amita and RJ have worked specifically in theater and performance work around some of these topics. I'd love to turn this question to you of how you see performance work and storytelling playing into the larger project of preventing and or responding to harm. And if you could share a little bit about the work you've done, I think it would also be wonderful to hear about that. I can start. Um, setting my timer. Uh, so a year ago, Mirror Memoirs uh, filmed a play because COVID, we didn't want to fill the theater. Um, and we uh, specifically spent 20 hours in writing workshops with four of our members, including our board co-chair, who are black trans women. Uh, one is an Afro-Latina um, intersex femme. Um, and the reason, and, and all of them were raped as children, to be clear everyone in Mirror Memoirs, right? And so the reason we um, brought them into writing workshops, it was based on a model I learned with Sarah um, through Ping Chong and company. But we, we really made it our own with the like ways that we incorporated some of the like ritual traditions from um, the diaspora of people who were enslaved and from Africa, like pouring water in between people's uh, testimonies, like lighting incense. Uh, we created the stage as an altar. There were um, specific altars to different Ifa deities, which was representative of the caste's spiritual beliefs and practices. Um, and along that, we took the 20 hours of journal entries uh, from the writing workshops and then also did one-on-one -on -one individual interviews with each of the cast members, wove their stories together into a chron chronological play that's about 90 minutes long called Transmutation, a Ceremony. And I think the reason I chose to focus so much of our resources in the middle of a pandemic on this particular play is because, you know, we're in a time where I think for people outside of specifically black trans community, hopefully it's legible in a way that perhaps wasn't before, that there's been an ongoing genocide very specifically against black trans people in this country um, because of the way racial capitalism and the legacy of enslavement has played out since this country was founded, right? Like since January of 2021, I believe it's 36 states have either uh, proposed or passed legislation um, with an eliminationist agenda against trans people, right? Can trans kids play sports? Can trans people use the bathroom? Can trans people get health care, for example? In Texas now we know that you can have the state called on you through child abuse if you're a parent who has a trans kid and wants to support your kid through medical care, right? So that's like the other, the side, more reasons that I'm an abolitionist of like, these are the systems, right, that are then being weaponized against people who are trans, including children, which is child abuse from the state, right? And so in order to make this legible during the post Me Too era, I think we were seeing the statistics very clearly mirrored in our membership base that what does it mean that gender nonconformity is a risk factor for being raped as a child? Well, it should mean that trans people as adults are disproportionately survivors you know, and including like when you layer in race and indigeneity, like we should see movements led by black trans women, for example, 
because they are disproportionately child sexual abuse survivors and survivors of adulthood violence. And that's not the face of the current movements nationally right now. So we wanted to course correct for that through storytelling because data is out there. It's out there. It's like federal data from the Justice Department on how there's like genocidal levels of sexual violence against trans people. And it's not actually infusing itself into collective movements. I think storytelling, like we're wired as human beings to sit around a fire from prehistoric days and witness each other. We have mirror neurons in our brain that are literally like fired when a listener and a storyteller pair together and like one witnesses the other. That's like part of our literal wiring neurobiologically as humans. It like creates empathy basically when those mirror neurons get fired. So, you know, we're using very basic human technology through the act of ensemble storytelling to try to get empathetic responses on a broad level. When you hear four black trans women talk about the police raped me when I was a child, the police trafficked me when I was a child. It was the guard at the juvenile prison that I was put into when I ran away from home at the age of 12 and was doing sex work on the streets to survive. These are not my stories. These are the stories of the women in transmutation. But I think when you hear those stories about like who is a perpetrator often includes people who are paid by the state to do the dirty work of the carceral system, right? Group home employees, psychiatric state institution employees, uh, of course, prisons, um, police, prison guards and police, right? Then it's no longer a debate, at least for me, on abolition, right? When the police are literally the ones raping vulnerable people, raping the people that are victims of our societal genocide, then why would we ask for more police if we really want to end the rape of all children? And that's a collective question for our society. Do we really mean it when we say no child should be raped? Because if we did mean that, then we would all be abolitionists. I think. And I think that's why I practice storytelling. You know, just to clear away the academic debates and the jargon and just get right to the heart of witnessing people's truths. Andrea, do you want to talk about story? Sure, yeah, yeah. I mean, um, the my experiences of being sexually abused were the only things that I kept from my mother. Like, I just had that kind of close relationship with her. She's a very open person, very accepting person. You know, and that was the only stuff I never told her about until I got into my mid-20s and kind of had this awakening. And um, I think there's, you spoke to this a bit, you mentioned it, it's like there's so much power in survivors telling our stories together. Um, and the first opportunity I had to do that was as part of a men's digital storytelling project. So um, a bunch of men from New York City and the Bay Area who were child sexual abuse survivors. We kind of each made our own little like three minute digital story like using whatever the technology is that you used to do that. Um, and um, you know so I was like telling my own story by myself but I was like next to another person and we kind of all showed each other our stories and um, that and that was like when I was just like okay I'm confronting this uh, you know that that opportunity to actually sort of construct a narrative of something that was kind of inside me so jumbled was really powerful and then and then to not be alone when it is such a, an isolating experience um, and then again, just like Pops, you and me, the, and, and Sarah, and Pink Company, I mean, the opportunity to then actually be embodied 
on stage together, you know, and, and tell stories in that way and have our stories kind of weave in and out of each other um, uh, was so deeply healing. Um, and we know that, you know, it's meaningful for a lot of folks who, who joined as, as audience. Um, right, story, stories are how we know the world, right? Um, and, I, and, I, and then I got to work in theater for a bunch of years. Um, and so, I, I mean, I, I think the thing I just want to say is that there's, that we, we desperately need um, uh, storytellers and artists to, 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 to join us here, to tell transformative justice stories, to tell restorative justice stories, to tell stories of just people that got together and dealt with some shit that happened to them. Um, like, uh, this, this kind of artistry is not... Um, is in no way secondary, ancillary, like less valuable than any other form of, of engagement or activism that we're involved in. Like it's, it's absolutely central. Um, and I think a lot of times, speaking as somebody who's lived more in the sort of political organizer activist world, I think that, um, and then gotten to collaborate with artists, I think that sometimes artists, you can be really artists in the room you can be really hard on yourselves like what am I doing you know making this thing and and and, and I just want to push back on that um, well we're wrapping up so this is the last question I'll offer and just to name this feels like it's scratching the surface of the deep and and, and long-standing work that all three of you are doing so this is just you know an introduction to some of their work um, but you know, thinking about you know, downstate presents this 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 attempt at an encounter, this attempt at a trans, at, a, at a transformation or at a reconciliation in some way, um, and it, it it doesn't go in a way that is particularly healing for the folks on stage, as far as I understand the slide. Um, and so my question for all of you is uh, not necessarily about hope, but where can we turn for the to, to understand what work is being done? Where can we keep tur turning to for additional resources? First of all. And also to understand how much work is happening around these questions. Like, where, where should we look? Where can listeners uh, turn to? Can you start with this one? Sure. Um, yeah, I was going to be like, the stuff that you're doing. Um, so I'll try to come up with something. Some really cool stories, like on the storytelling front, like there's a project that's been dormant but is kind of being revived called the Storytelling and Organizing Project, um, which you can find online. Like, there's just a lot of great stories on there. Of like people coming together to address um, violence in the community. Um, common justice. We don't do work around child sexual abuse. In fact, we don't take any cases that like relate to any form of sexual violence. Um, so I, I just kind of want to name that on the like. In case you got those things connected in this presentation, I need to do a disclaimer. Please don't come to us looking for that. We don't do it. Um, but I think there's a bunch of things happening out there. My head's just been buried in the sand of having like two little kids and a job, and you know what I mean? Pandemic. Um, yeah, pandemic. Um, I think there's a lot out there. Transformharm.org yeah. is a site that Miriam Kaba curated, probably with a lot of people, because everything she does is with a lot of people. Um, but transformharm.org is a great starter website that people can go, and but it's a, an amazing archive of a lot of um, responses to different kinds of intimate violence without engaging the state. 
So that's one. Um, if you want to connect with Mirror Memoirs specifically, even though we are gathering the stories of LGBTQ people of color who are child sexual abuse survivors, because of the way I see our work as being about ending rape culture, and 100% of us are inside of that, we also have an accomplice member uh, level, which all of you are invited to be part of. It's literally like, do you want to co-create a world where child sexual abuse doesn't happen and we don't use prisons or police to get there, then yeah, you should come to our events. We have an abolition book club. Miriam actually spoke at it last uh, month. Um, and so that happens every other month. It's tinyurl.com slash mmbookclub2022, I think. Uh, but our website is mirrormemoirs.org. <laughs> We will be uh, launching our brand new website in the spring, and we are on Instagram. Twitter's dying, so I don't know, but we're on there too. Um, but we're mirror.memoirs on Instagram, and we're on Facebook as well. Um, uh, like I said, so for my day job, I have the immense pleasure of working for an organization called Just Beginnings Collaborative. You can follow them on these social medias and on their website, justbeginnings.org. Um, they're doing just really amazing work and they're really supporting a lot of folks around who are in the child sexual abuse prevention arena, intervention arena, grassroots arena, whatever you want to call it. Um, otherwise, the Davy Co-op is really special. It's really near to my heart. It's actually named after my mother, who is a DV survivor. Um, and yeah, we, we mostly in like our cohort work very extensively in Georgia, but we have folks and co-conspirators all across the South, all across the mountain region, Midwest, just people who are in red states trying to navigate the shit show that is going on in the red states. Um, because a lot of the resources out there are developed by folks in blue states with very different political and like social cultural climates than kind of what we navigate down there um, or a little bit over. Um, so yeah, really recommend the Davy Co-op. They have Instagram and stuff too. I don't on social media, so I don't really know about that type of stuff. But yeah, those two. Um, oh, also, if you want to read about like stuff around registry, um, I always recommend to a lot of people Erica Miner and Juno Lithium's book, um, The Feminism Sex Offender. I think it's a really brilliant argument. Um, and also, I want to re elevate Nicole Pittman. Um, I can't remember the full name of her report off the top of my head because it's a very long title, but if you look up Nicole Pittman, you can find her very incredible report about juveniles who are sentenced to the registry and the impacts on their lives. That's also actually originally a storytelling project based off of actual interviews done um, with young people who were criminalized um, for their actions. And actually, Judith is joining us for our next panel. Okay. She'll be with us speaking So before we close out, I just want to offer to any of you know any of you if there's any final thing you really want to make sure to name or say. Uh, in this conversation that feels important to, to put into the space before we close. I just want to say that in a time of pandemic, it's been a time of a lot of talk about grief. And I think that the work of preventing child sexual abuse is a collective responsibility to grieve the reality that kids are being raped at an endemic rate. And that's not just for survivors to hold. And that like some of the um, orientation that we've all been raised through propaganda like law and order and whatnot to believe that like this prison system is going to somehow save us like it's been illegal to rape kids right prison we have the largest prison population in the world here and kids today right now are still being raped at endemic rates and part of the work of undoing that desire for like fiery punishment in our hearts and heads is to just get in touch with our grief around that reality right it's, it's devastating, 
Um, and it's something we all hopefully have a little more practice around that feeling of grief, like after this, through this ongoing pandemic, like that's part of the work is in order to build a new world, we have to get in touch with our feelings about how fucked up this one is and that we can build something better, but it's not just for survivors to do. It's collective work. Um, I think it's really easy for people to wrap their minds around the idea, as someone who does survivor defense work, I think it's really easy for people to wrap their minds around the idea that survivors of gender-based violence are criminalized by our system. Um, people are a lot less forgiving around the idea that survivors of gender-based violence are the ones that cause harm. Um, I think that it, it, it does everyone a complete disservice when we uphold the binaries. Um, and I know that's a basic thing that permeates all of organizing culture, like destroy all the binaries, but I really like it. Like um, we were talking about, like it's, it's very cyclical and um, I don't know. Like Amitha said, healing isn't necessarily forgiveness. Healing isn't necessarily, healing definitely is an accountability. And I just want to say, like, I, I really hate rhetoric out there as well that conflates healing with accountability mm -hmm. because that's not true at mm -hmm. all. Um, just to share about my life, like, I really hated my dad for a very long time in my life. And I also really hated my mom for a very long time in my life. And, like, it wasn't until I understood what they had went through that I found healing in my own life. And that comes not even just from storytelling, that comes from information that's on the internet. I didn't even know really about my PTSD until I started to learn about that. I didn't know that my epilepsy is caused by my complex PTSD yeah. until I really started to learn about that. Um, I'm gonna get emotional, but really like, we're not really all different from one another if you really think about it. Like everyone kind of really has the same values. We just want our families to be safe. Mm -hmm. We want ourselves to be safe. And mm -hmm. yeah, just really think about that sometimes. I would say that whenever I'm a part of something like this and anybody shows up, it's just lovely. Mm -hmm. Like that we've all decided to spend an hour and a half together talking about something that's really hard, facing into it. Um, and so it's just nice to not, not be alone in this. Thank you. Thank you, Ajay. Thank you, Amita. Thank you, Jenny. And thank you all for joining us. Thank you.